Hello, and welcome to the Flathead Beacon Podcast. I'm Andy Viano. This week, I'm talking to a man whose work is as close to one of a kind as anyone. Brian Osterday is a furrier, a craftsman who creates and sells handcrafted pieces using animal hides out of his shop in Kyla. Osterday claims he's the only person in the lower 48 states who makes authentic muckluck boots, and he's one of the few people anywhere still using antique sewing machine to turn those hides into hats, scarves, beer koozies, and much, much more. My colleague Maggie Dresser profiled Osterday for this week's Flathead Beacon, and her story, Last of His Kind, is a must-read that you can find online right now at flatheadbeacon.com or by running out and picking up a copy of this week's paper. And before you listen to Osterday, I would highly recommend, at the very least, paging through the incredible photos of the man and his studio in this week's issue, if not digging into Maggie's story in its entirety. There's just so much more than what we talked about in my interview with Osterday that you'll hear in just a minute. And of course, after that conversation, stick around for a rundown of the biggest stories from Northwest Montana in the last seven days. But first, a reminder that this podcast and all of the work we produce at the Flathead Beacon is made possible, in part, by members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. Club members pay as little as $5 per month to put their support behind all of our work, and they get some great perks, too. Find out more or join today at beaconeditorsclub.com. It is my pleasure now to be joined by Brian Osterday, the subject of this week's Flathead Beacon cover story, put together by my colleague Maggie Dresser. The cover story is titled The Last of His Kind, and we are talking to Brian today from his shop and storefront out in Kyla. Brian, thank you so much for uh, making the time to talk to me today. Sure. So I want to talk about the, the work that you're doing now, but I, before we get to that, I'm wondering if you can let me and our listeners know a little bit about yourself. Where where are you from, and uh, and what was the journey to uh, to get you here to, to Flathead County, Montana? Well, um, I pretty much lived in Minnesota for about 30-some years. Um, we just recently moved up here, and uh, we've been planning it for quite some time. I've got a brother and a sister that live in the area, so and a few cousins that live in the area. But um pretty much we we lived in Minnesota. I mean that's that's where I learned the craft at and and it was it's a long journey. <laughs> and the craft that you're talking about and you say it it comes from in the story uh, a, a gentleman named Peter Paul out in Minnesota. How did you get introduced to this business, to, to the furrier business, and, and why did it did it have such a hold on you that, that you're still doing it all these years later? Well, I've always been, way back when I was growing up as a kid, I was always into arts, crafts. I've done everything from stained glass to, you know, macrame to what wood shop, uh, you name it, I've done it. But when I ran into Pete and I learned the craft of fur, it was just it just stuck. Um, it was something I enjoyed doing. So it makes it a lot more enjoyable when you're doing something that you love to do. Um, 
I just love the history of the fur. I I mean, and the machines that go with it. I mean, just everything about it intrigues me. It's just it's just fun for me. I just enjoy creating. I've done all kinds of things: blankets, coats, koozies, to hats, mittens, boots, and then I kind of took this from another level than Pete had. Pete taught me, you know, basically the muckluck boots, and that, you know, there's nobody else in the lower 48 states that know how to make all fur mucklucks. With these pieces you do, obviously there's a lot of, it it is, as you say, a a really personal craft, and and these are obviously not coming off the assembly line. These are all custom-made for for your clients, how long does it take? What's the process like from a customer contacting you saying, hey, here's what I'd like, and and, and you being able to get that uh, put together and done? Well, it varies depending on what they're ordering, obviously. If you're ordering a simple hat, you know, it can be a week. You know, it just depends on my backlog, too, as well as that goes. Christmas times, I really get backed up. I do a lot of fur slippers, a lot of hats, a lot of mountain man hats. Uh, boots, they can take me a little longer. Um, I usually try to tell customers on boots to try to order them three, three weeks. Not to say it takes me three weeks. I can generally get them done in about a week and a half, but sometimes other things are ahead of it. <laughs> I know in in the story, Maggie wrote about your son who has taken up some of this this work back in Minnesota, and and there's reference in there to even his young son, maybe uh, years from now being the next generation. Had, had it ever? Had you ever attempted or or tried to to bring some other folks in to try and expand this and and maybe take on an apprentice or or make sure that that even beyond your own family lineage that that there would be other people who who still know this craft and and know how to do it, you know, in the years and and decades from now? I've been asked about Apprentice for quite some time. I'm not saying that I'm not ever going to do that, but it it is an art that I'd like to pass down to my family. New age technology can kind of save some of that craft. Because I've done some videos to where I've just saved videos of me making things that can be passed down. Not only on top of that, my patterns are a whole nother thing. Creating patterns, you pretty much have to create it, you know, by yourself. There isn't really anybody out there that you can just go order these patterns and know how to do it. Sure, on some things, but boots on every set of feet, these are custom made. In other words, I take your, you know, outline of your right foot, your left foot, your calf size, and your height. I start with a blank piece of paper and create a whole pattern for that foot. So when you look at it, some people have gotten into accidents and have issues with their feet. Some people order because they have poor circulation in their feet and they need something that really protects them from the winter. So doing a custom job like that, it's kind of more of a tradition to pass that down. Now, my son has worked with me for about four years, 
any other store in Minnesota. And my grandson, he's grown up quite well around me and the store. So hopefully both of them take that trade. We'll see. I don't know. It's just, it's a tough deal. Finding somebody commit to, committed to it and really loves to do it, sometimes that's not always easy. Everybody's got talent in them. Some people just never find that talent. Do you know what it is that, that drew you particularly to this? I mean, I, I ever wondered why it was this and not, you know, taxidermy or sticking with the, the photography or some other kind of work, why this was the thing that, that hooked you as it has? I think it had a lot to do with not just the fur, but it also had to do with creating, and it also had to do a big part with the history. I am just just fascinated with these machines. You know, the machines ain't light. There isn't any plastic on them. I've got machines that go all the way back to 1895. I've got machines that have made history that showed Walt Disney characters back in the 60s and 70s. Glove manufacturers, top hat manufacturers. It just, it just fascinates me with the history of it all. Where do you find these machines? I know we've got, we've got a photograph of one in, in the issue, uh, of the, the beacon this week. I mean, how, how did you come to acquire these and, and how do you maintain them? I imagine a machine from 1895 has, has had some work done over the last 125 years. Well, not really, because things that were made back in them days, they were meant to last. They didn't have plastic on them. As long as you oil them and, and, you know, clean them every once in a while, they'll last you forever. They don't go fast RPMs like, you know, your engine in your car. So for there, as long as you keep them oiled, you ain't, you know, one of them stolen machines, just the head of it weighs 34 pounds. So 34 pounds. Now, all the maintenance I do, I do myself. There just really isn't much, but it's usually just more fine-tuning than it is anything breaking. Brian, it has been great talking to you. I appreciate you uh, you making all the time and, and encourage folks to go check out the story in the Beacon this week. But, uh, uh, again, thank you for, uh, for sparing a few minutes and chatting with me today. Sure, not a problem. You guys all have a good week. If you haven't already, please do check out this week's Beacon and Maggie Dresser's cover story, Last of His Kind, to learn so, so much more about Brian Osterday and his furs, and check out his work by searching for Wildlife Montana on Facebook. Now, here are the biggest stories from the last seven days as of 9 p.m., on Tuesday, February 2nd. Flathead County health officials are continuing to distribute the COVID-19 vaccine, albeit at a frustrating pace for the thousands of local residents now eligible to receive the immunizations, but waiting for an appointment. As of Monday, more than 5,000 county residents had received the first of two vaccine doses, with 2,350 of those people already fully vaccinated. But at the Flathead City County Board of Health's monthly meeting last week, Health Officer Joe Russell said more than 8,000 people were on a waiting list for an appointment, 
and that the county expected to get just 1,200 first doses each week. Montana is currently vaccinating those identified by Governor Greg Gianforte as part of Tier 1B, which includes anyone over 70 years of age, Native Americans or other people of color, and those with serious underlying health conditions. With county residents in those groups requesting the vaccine at a high rate, Russell expects his department could need to vaccinate more than 20,000 people in that tier and acknowledged in a press release late Tuesday that likely means vaccinations in Tier 1B will take months to complete. Gianforte, for his part, has been pleading with the federal government for a greater allocation of vaccine doses as production nationwide is failing to keep up with the extremely high demand. In other news, Glacier National Park Superintendent Jeff Mao told more than 150 local businesses last week that a return to normal is unlikely this summer. Mao said, quote, COVID is not cooperating and cautioned that, especially the beginning of the busy tourist season in late spring and early summer, could be challenging. Among the most difficult challenges pertains to the many seasonal employees who work at Glacier Park, many of whom live in communal settings that are untenable, with the coronavirus still prevalent throughout the country. Several questions still remain for the 2021 tourist season, too, including what Glacier's once-robust shuttle system will look like after it was parked in 2020, whether or not the eastern border of the park shared with the Blackfeet Indian Reservation will open, and what campgrounds will be available. Elsewhere, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol agents are hunting for a Canadian national suspected of being involved in multiple homicides north of the border after they unknowingly released him from custody in late January. Nassim Ali Muhammad was one of four people detained after an hour-long high-speed chase that stretched from a remote border community in Lincoln County all the way to just outside Whitefish, where the vehicle they were driving crashed after hitting spike strips deployed by law enforcement. Three of the men, including a second accused killer, have been charged in U.S. District Court with various crimes related to an illegal border crossing, but Mohammed, who claimed he was an American citizen, was released from custody after a fingerprint analysis revealed no criminal history. But a day after his release, Mohammed's true identity was revealed with the help of Canadian authorities. And finally, a new-looking public transit service is up and running in Flathead County. The Mountain Climber, formerly branded Eagle Transit, first hit the streets last month, and the county's full fleet is expected to be re-outfitted and on the road by May. The rebrand is part of a larger plan to expand public transportation offerings in the Flathead Valley, with new routes planned to improve access to Whitefish Mountain Resort and Glacier National Park, among other areas. That's our show for this week. Remember, you can read more about all of these stories and catch the latest breaking news for free on our website. That's flatheadbeacon.com. Until next week, thanks for listening.